If you've got a question, the voices of resin are here. Flash Chicks is an SPE-sponsored podcast. Hey, hey, Lindsay, how's it going? I am just lovely. How are you? Good, good. I'm super excited for uh, for this uh, interview that we have today. Um, I, so I told, I'm really excited too, and I told my husband about it, and I was like, you don't understand. And um, he admitted, no, he didn't understand why it was this big of a deal. But I, I had, I had... I had a morning meeting. So we have, we have two, you know, um, our company is, is now two, it's two companies becoming one. And, um, and so we have a morning meeting, uh, every other day. And I told the whole morning meeting before they were, everybody was able to run out. I was like, no, no, no everybody wait, hold on. Like, guess what is happening today? <laughs> and, um, and so, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm Mercedes Landazari. I'm color lab technology director at Peacock colors and vortex of color. And I am Lindsay Neville and I am an upstream quote engineer for Cytiva. It's a very new title. So uh, <laughs> give me a couple, couple weeks to practice it. Um, and we, uh, we met through our, uh, our volunteer work uh, association work with society of plastics engineers who generally sponsors this podcast. And with our powers combined, we are plastics, <laughs> the voices of resin. Um, so you can listen to our podcast anywhere you digest your podcast. You can you can find them on SPE's um, uh, YouTube page, or you can go to 4SPE.org slash podcast and listen to us there. iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, um, all of, I think, all of those, but uh, yeah. Google Podcasts, all of them. Um, but yes, enough about us. Um, so today we are very, very lucky to have uh, with us here um, uh, Hugh Carriker. Um, if you don't know, uh, who he is, he is, um, uh, he is the great grandson of, uh, Leo Bakelin, who, uh, was the uh, inventor of the, uh, the first plastic made from, uh, synthetic materials. So legend. Um, and also with us today, we have, uh, John Marr, um, who is the director um, of the film, the documentary, All Things Bakelite. Uh, and, uh, and we are having them on today, uh, especially because, um, they're going to be releasing that, uh, film for streaming, um, on, uh, June 29th. Is that correct? Yes. Wonderful. Well, thank you. That was a very long intro, but, uh, <laughs> just, I needed some background in case some of our listeners don't know what Bakelite was, is. Um, but yes, um, thank you so much for, for joining us. Happy to be here. Nice to see you. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, getting started, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a plastics engineer. Um, I went to school at Penn State. And, you know, one of the first classes we have before you can do, before you see the machines, before you, you know, see any of the materials, anything like that is um, it's not a formal history of plastics, but it's a, you know, a general, this is kind of how the plastics industry came to be um thing. So, you know, Hugh, I gotta I gotta admit, I'm fangirling real hard right now. Um so you know this is this is I I hear about you pretty much my first plastics class that I ever had. And um now I now I'm here short years later, not not as many as <laughs> as LinkedIn or other things will tell you. Um, so I'm excited. Um, and you know, so you guys have worked together on, um, this movie called all things Bakelite. 
Um, and really it kind of delves into that initial story that I was first told in college. Um, what, you know, how did this come to be? What, where did you guys decide that this is a movie you wanted to make? Well, my mother had the family archives and when she passed away, she gave them to me. She wanted to write the biography, but never got to it. So I decided to make the movie. And I used uh, her notes, her letters, Baseline's letters, photographs, and gave them to John after a, a little bit of what he calls the dance of the tarantulas. I <laughs> let him explain that. So when we first met, John and I had, get to, had to get together and see eye to eye on uh, the, the theme of the movie. I'll let John explain that more. Go yeah, ahead. well, yeah, the, the dance of the tarantulas has to do with when you first uh, link up with people in, in, in any kind of enterprise, but particularly filmmaking, I think, because it's such a, uh, it amplifies all the human characteristics. Uh, when you first meet someone and uh, you're thinking, well, maybe we should work together on this film, whatever their good or bad personality Features, I think, are like magnified by times 10 when you get into the nitty gritty of filmmaking, which is extremely uh, time consuming and uh, energy. You know, making a film is like a it's a big flywheel that just wants to sit there. It's got a huge mass and you've got to start pushing it and getting it turning and finding the right people. So that's what I call the dance of tarantulas, where you, you learn about individuals and see if they are. Uh, trustworthy and capable and have a sense of humor and you can work with them. And I think you and I hit it off pretty, pretty quickly. Um, I actually hired him to dance with his wife in an earlier history film I was doing. So it turned out that he and his wife, Sherry, they're terrific dancers, much better than me. And um, so they danced in an earlier film. And I think uh, after that, you was spying on me to see, how my project went, whether I was able to uh, stay on budget and not like, you know, have gunfire between the crew members, things like that. So uh, uh, we started our research phase. Uh, we went to the Smithsonian. We we did a very important roundtable, what we call a, uh, I call a roundtable discussion with some research chemists that were at Dow that was formerly, uh, was at Bound Brook, uh, I think, in New Jersey. Union Carbide. Yeah, formerly Union Carbide. And um, I made them crazy with my with my take on. I, I really wanted to knock this out of the the box that, that maybe a chemist sits in. And mm -hmm. like I asked questions like, what would the world be like without without bakelite, without plastic? And uh, we got a lot of good basic information from that early uh, discussion. So uh, and we just started working on it. We started putting the elements together uh, and interviewing. We we lucked out, I think, um, with really good people to interview. And we got some terrific material. And uh, we had some archive film. And, you know, it's a big, it's a big, uh, it's a big melting pot that you put together. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, I something just as you're talking, you know, knocking it out of like the box that, that chemists and now we're, we're already off of the agenda, but 
one of my favorite quotes from the film was um was uh i think she's where does she, where was she working the, there was a woman who worked for ibm i think jamie garcia the, yes yeah yeah so she she said i think it was her that said bakelite is a very elegant molecule um in that you're starting with something very simple and when you react it you end up um with a very complex system with lots of different uh interconnectivity um within the molecule itself you know um but so that is like, you know, maybe the chemist take. And so it's, it's like, that's like very, like, you know, very deep, um, but also just blowing it out and, and making it accessible to, well, you know, people like I was six years ago who, who didn't like, as the film also mentions, plastic is almost kind of invisible because it is um, everywhere, you know, that we don't even see what it is. We don't even recognize it for what it is. So, so with that, I guess, what, what were some of the initial, um, what were some of the initial applications for Bakelite? And uh, are there any applications where it's still used today? Um, they were used for um, automobile parts, um, the distributor caps, and ignition systems needed to be um, not conducted electricity. So those were the early parts and they're still being made uh, out of Bakelite, brake pistons and uh, water pumps and various parts of uh, cars are made out of Bakelite. Yeah, I did love um, when you guys are talking about in the movie how um, the electrical coils were, you know, the shellac was melting. Um, right. And I... I'm an upstate New York kind of girl. So I love a good shout out to Niagara Falls. My family's from <laughs> Buffalo. Um, and like, you know, it's, it's cool because at that time, you know, there was all this innovation and, you know, um, forward movement with, you know, engineering and electricity uh, in the Buffalo area. You know, Buffalo is like one of the first cities to be all electric and like to also be incorporating Bakelite into that, um, that infrastructure at the same time, um, just a melting of two loves of mine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, and you talk about in the. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say that the world was uh, trying to uh, harness this demon, this magical uh, servant slash demon, electricity. And one of the reasons that Bakelite really was scored big early is that they were trying to in increase the voltages, the amperage levels that could be carried in coils and wires and the uh the sheathing they had before was just burning up and so uh when bakelite came in they covered uh a copper wire with bakelite and discovered that it was a tremendously good conductor and we actually did a little experiment we built a little kind of a, a archetypal film interior of a of a thing i don't know what you would call it a coil inside a radio or something it was it was actually a little a little a little world we created up at the uh, up at the broadcast museum uh communications museum in near hartford and the guys were great there you know they, they you, one of the problems when you're doing filmmaking you 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 really ask weird questions you know and you have to <laughs> you have to do strange things and people think sometimes you're a little nuts but i said you know we i need to i need to create this uh, scene with this coil basically melts down and and you know they're looking at me and then one guy had a twinkle in his eye and said you mean we get to blow something up <laughs> said, yes we do and we actually blew out the uh 
the uh, all the power in the laboratory in the museum and doing the shot. So we had to do it over and rewire. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody got into it. Yeah. Everybody really got into building this little, little world and then setting the camera up to, so it would go into the coil just as it was uh, starting to heat up and exploding. So that was, that's fun. And and again, that's what I call a, a sticky part of a film that you remember stuff like that. And that's part of the filmmaker. Yeah, and just such a key application, especially for, I mean, just where, um, what plastics have, have enabled. I mean, that's how we're talking right now, you know, to the internet, right? We, we wouldn't have that if, if the coils were all burning. But, um, you know, and we talk about, you know, well, and actually, Lindsay, you'd mentioned, you know, with the electricity and, and Bakelite, uh, you know, really um, happening, you know, really, really um, ramping up at the same time. Um, and then... Hugh in the film um, and John, you guys talked about um, how how Leo was was at the at the right place at the right time, and so that reminds me of that. But also, you know, let's talk about some of the company that he kept, some of his contemporaries hmm. like um, Thomas Edison, Alexander Graham Bell, the Wright brothers, and and Henry Ford. Right? It was this really really burgeoning time for for the Industrial Revolution, of course. Right? Um, but um, so w- did he actually? Was was he actually so he was contemporary of those people? Did did he actually have meetings with these people? Did they know each other? Did they did they chill? Did they like watch? Um, I don't know the baseball game. Uh, uh, he he was a uh, a little later than Thomas Edison, but um, and and those guys were making their they had made their inventions before he made his. So his invention satisfied some of the problems that they all had. There's a great journal entry uh, that I think actually uh, Leo's wife, Celine, put down one morning. Uh, Alex Bell called on the telephone this morning. Wow. <laughs> he actually ended up being a family member, didn't he? Um, you? Uh, Alexander Bell. Bell. No, he married a good friend. His daughter married a good friend of Leo's. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. that's wild. And and so the Celine was uh so his wife, her I love that in the film her nickname was Bumble, Bumble. right? <laughs> a solid nickname. And so which is clearly where they where they got the name for the app. Definitely just <laughs> everything comes back to fake light. Um but um uh now why so so Leo was born um or at least lived in in Ghent uh in in Europe and um but he moved to Yonkers why specifically Yonkers uh easy access to Manhattan gotcha uh, and up the river he loved the river he had a boat on the river a yacht uh-huh. so he's a big boater and I think he grew up on a, a river in Ghent Belgium Oh wow! Uh-huh. Yeah, I actually basically for the very same reasons. That's why I lived in Yonkers, <laughs> but I went to college there, so it was it was cool to find out that that was that was where Big Light was invented. Um, yeah. Right next door to the um, big estate up there, the uh, Untermeyer estate. Untermeyer, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So um, now in the film, uh, you do touch on the, um, uh, you know, after Bakelite started to take off, 
um, there were a lot of patent infringers. And uh, it mentions that, that uh, Leo was very crafty with his patent writing. And really, that's that's, you know, why why um, it was able to to take off so much that he ended up absorbing some of the, the competition. How did he like where and how did he learn his crafty yeah, patent writing? Where did that, writing? that foresight come from? Because I feel like even today, there are people that write patents that are not very thoughtful like that. <laughs> a very crafty attorney. Uh, Charles Townsend, I think, became his attorney and laid all the words to use. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess he had been through, I mean, Bakelite was not his first like really big invention that took off, right? It was, it was preceded, as you mentioned in the film by um, uh, Velox, right? For, it was the, you know. Um, so which, which he then sold to, um, to Eastman for, what was it? Seven, was it really, I was looking into it. Was it really $750,000? Yes. But back in those days, that was worth a couple of million. Yeah. Yeah. pre tax too. There was mm-hmm. no income tax back then. Right. 1899 we're talking. Wow. And on the, on the train up to see George Eastman, he was wondering, oh, what should I ask for this company? 10,000? Uh, maybe 15,000. And he was banding about these numbers, which turned out to be very low. And he said, I'm, I'm just going to let Eastman make an offer. And <laughs> how about we do this, which actually there's some estimates that it was up to a million dollars to take the company. And of course, sometimes it's good to keep your mouth shut, right? <laughs> I had to share the money with his two partners. Mm-hmm. I could um, a couple million. Yeah, he was able to build a uh, snug rock or not build, but buy and refurbish a wonderful mansion right on the Hudson river that had a, a barn next door, a kind of a garage barn that he converted into an amazing laboratory. So really that puts him in the category of like all those, you know, uh, what Amazon started in a barn, well, a garage, uh, you you know, Google, you got all those great garage slash barn, uh, starting company. So I'm going to go ahead and just slap Bakelite right in there. Yeah, actually, I never thought of that. You're right. It has that has that cachet of being. And, and you know, one of the things I think about is if Leo Bakelite could discover plastic in a barn, why can't all these legions of laboratories and cor- corporate uh, chemical companies come up with a way of a way to to get control of plastic in terms of the mm-hmm. of the plastic misuse that's going on? You know, biodegradability. Um, you know, what? Why is why does it seem that innovation often happens? Not always, but often happens by the individual small guy. And I think Leo also had a little inferiority complex, being an immigrant from Belgium. Belgium, and I think he really wanted to prove himself. Uh, and he yeah, did. that that, uh, that drive to you know. That little bit of inferiority complex, I feel like, just fosters <laughs> so much. Oh, it carries me far. I'll tell you <laughs> yeah, that. You know, well, the and the the other thing was like uh, what we mentioned. You know, as he's described in the film, is just he could he well, and he had the revelation right where he felt like he would be most successful if he just picked one thing and, and just focused on that. And then also the side of his personality where he was just just incredibly relentless and, and very, very meticulous with all of his documentation of his experiment experiments. So it's like, you know, sometimes to innovate, you have to be obsessed in a, in a, in this very single minded way. And, but the other cool thing that, that I 
you know, um, you know, I think one, one, one person described it in the film as like, you know, where other people saw a wall, Leo leaned against the wall and found a door, but I'm like, no, it didn't seem like he was leaning, just leaning against the wall. He was like pushing every single little like piece of that door, trying to find the, because he knew it was there, you know, he sniffed it out and, you know, going back to like right place at the right time. He didn't start in the right place at the right time, right? Was Ghent going to be the right place for him? Was he going to be able to innovate there? There was a who's who of chemistry in Europe in the late 1800s that couldn't mm-hmm. couldn't solve this thing called the phenolic resin problem, mm-hmm. and they all mm-hmm. gave up. And he, mm-hmm. Leo thought there was something there, and he just figured a way to make it work. Uh, when all these other guys who were really top names in chemistry couldn't figure it out, so there's the stubbornness coming in. How long did he work on it? You was it four or five years straight in the barn? Yeah. So and you said, you know, he kept really detailed notes and journals. Um, you know, was he was he like writing about this like every day? Like I feel like I would I would get frustrated and I'd be like, didn't find anything today. I am mad. And I just like (laughs) (laughs) you know, what were those what were those notes like? We saw them in the Smithsonian uh, pretty detailed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think he just was, it's maybe a form of meditation in the sense that, that every day at the end of the day, he would go up into the turret of his house in the Yonkers up in that, that Avery up above and, and reflect upon the day's work. And you know how it is. Sometimes you have a problem, you lay in bed at night and you think about it from four or five different angles and finally you fall asleep. And then maybe you wake up again and make another note. And he was just that kind of person. Mm-hmm. What is now? Is the um? Is the is the house and lab still there? No, it burned down in 1957. Oh, oh man, shame. One interesting note, if I may put in, uh, we did a lab scene. We actually built our own little uh, version of Leo's lab, and uh, no one can argue uh, argue about the authenticity of the glassware because it's new character here had all the original glassware. Well. Yeah, so it's like the original. We're looking at the actual glassware that discovered plastic. That's really wow. I'm like, yeah, goosebumps. Like, (laughs) that's so cool. And you don't know that, you know, in in the film, Um, you know, when you're watching it, that's really, really cool. Um, So, uh, and Lindsay, you had touched on the the kind of inferiority complex, or, 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 um, and John, you know, you, you know, coming, being, being um, you know, that, that um, immigrant mentality. Um, one point in the film that really struck me, you know, talks about how successful um, he was and how successful Bakelite was. And, but then it also mentions that like in his later years, he was peevish and discouraged. Why? Well, I think those words are a little strong. He was um, upset about the business side of Bakelite. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he, his son didn't want to take over the business, so he sold it. Mm-hmm. And after that, he never got back to the lab. Uh, he had, he went and discovered botany. Wow. Bought a house in Florida on Millionaire's Row. Became friends with um, Fairchild. David Fairchild, the famous botanist. And 
learned he learned how to grow exotic fruits like ashes the Jamaican food and fruits and vegetables and he was almost as scientific about plants as it was about bakelite. Yeah, it's kind of a shame that he didn't, you know, just sell the, the company early and yeah. and with all these millions put his efforts into botany or micro uh, microbiology or whatever he Ever he was, his brain was racing, but he, he almost had these, and I, I liken them to little mini breakdowns every couple of months up at the Bakelite uh, business in New York, and he just had to get away, and he'd go down on his boat to Florida and kind of center himself and then go back up, but I don't think he could let it go. I don't think he didn't want as so many people that discover something or have a business. Think of all the family businesses that have trouble um, mm-hmm passing it down to the kids because those kids don't know how to run it like I do type of mentality. And to some extent, I think, you know, Bakelite, it was his baby and he didn't want to give it away really to anyone. And I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, you know, that, you know, he didn't have someone who wanted to take it over. Um, Cause I see this industry itself has a lot of, you know, family owned companies with, you know, the parents running the company and, you know, the kids taking it over as the next generation. Um, that would have been a cool kind of um, tradition to be started <laughs> with the actual first plastic, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do, do, um, do any of the, um, uh, do any of Leo's descendants still actively work in the plastics industry today that you're aware of? There's a marine biologist, uh, his, Baseline's um, grandson was a psychiatrist, and um, my other nephew is uh, managing a biotech lab in California. So, no scientists, lots of artists, uh-huh. and people who just enjoy life, uh, writers. But no scientists. Mm-hmm. And you say, and you mentioned that there are lots of artists, and you can kind of feel that if 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 this was, I don't know, if it was more Hugh, if it was more your influence or and vision, or John, if it was more yours. But all of the great, um, the great music in the film, all of the great original songs that that kind of serve as like an interlude or like a little a little break from the um, from you know, the, the science part of it. Right. Um, it's really refreshing. So, so was that, um, was that more Hughes doing or was it more, more John's vision? John was the creator of all those fun things in the movie. I only did the fun stuff. I have a, we're very, I'm very blessed to have Craig Mkhitaryan as my editor now a long time for, we've worked together for 20 years or more. And then Marty Fiji as a composer, all the films I do have, all an original score so it's all scored and so it's (laughs) sometimes it's hard to work with with marty i mean we have we have our moments but in general uh you know it basically comes down to i can't do this because i don't know how to do music i have a feeling Mm -hmm. for what i want to hear but i said you've got to do it and so uh, we have a we have a good relationship i've known marty for over 30 years and and craig the editor for 25 20 25 years so they bring a lot to the party, you know, and uh, yeah. So the other thing is this guy here, you character has 
uh, annoyingly good suggestions. <laughs> and I think the whole idea as a, as a filmmaker, as a director is just sort of uh, just be the orchestra leader and combine all this. And sometimes it's a matter of getting out of people's way, you know, um, and that itself has a music of its own. You notice in the in the um, movie, there's a guitar made of bakelite. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. a castanet, right? Bakelite, mm -hmm. and the pool balls where you shoot pool. Mm -hmm. The sound right. of the balls breaking mm -hmm. is music to my ears. <laughs> right. Well, and it was so cool too. Like you know, getting into into that side and really. The, which is not the sciencey side, and but really like embracing it from the design perspective. You know, you have um, um, who is the professor from from um, Pratt? Professor uh, spoke. Us. Yes, yes. So it was just like was one of the most had some of the most beautiful descriptions of Bakelite, and and really blew my mind that it was that she said without Bakelite we we couldn't have a streamlined design. You know, this this style that that appeared. You know, from um, in in the United States in, in the 1930s, that was like from the Art Deco, but like this shiny surfaces, it really, really, I mean, you can you can. So so thinking about, um, I think I saw a presentation of an architect uh, talking about plastics, and he mapped out. He said if you map out uh, the history of of um, of building materials, um, all of the you know you know thousands of years. Um, into a 365-day calendar, with the clay brick being the first one, right? Plastic has only been around for two days, you know. Wow. And we have, and we have only, and, and and so we're really only scratching the surface. And um, all of the all of the ways that you can alter plastics, um, and um, you know, the the aesthetic and and mechanical properties is just so so uh, far beyond anything else that came before it, right? And 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 it's just the beginning. Well, yeah, she yeah. says um, Bakelite changed the way things looked, and mm -hmm. it's it, it's hard to calculate what that really means, even because we I think we take in that whole feel of Bakelite not not intellectually but almost through our our souls, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. I actually had a line that I I wrote for the film called you know what is the heart of Bakelite. And Jorge Caicedo, one of one of our first interviews, says, "You know, every every material has a heart," and I I love that sensibility. I like I like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Think of it. Yeah, like it's de it's definitely the designer. The you know the designers. Um, you know what what CMF does, the color material finish designers think about like, you know, what is this material? How does it want to be used? You know? Yeah, I know um, that one that baby monitor um, the. <laughs> Oh yes, that was so. Oh, and with Noguchi, Noguchi was like it blew my mind. It was like he did like the this guy who because he he did that famous sorry the, the the Noguchi table which is like like huge huge mid century modern like you'd recognize it if you've never seen it before. Um, but um, but sorry, go ahead, Lindsay. But he well, he also designed like the first baby monitor. Yeah, right? I just love that it's it's that like that practical like you know essentially salt of the earth you know product because you need. And before that, you didn't need it. But now you really can't function without a baby monitor if you have a baby. And like, and the fact that the incorporation of like, oh, well, it kind of looks like a mother's face or a nurse's face or something like that. I just thought that it was so, um, th there was, 
you know, you couldn't have done that before. You know, that was just like, here is this first step. Not only are we going to take it into a practical application for something that you need, but now we're also going to take it into like, take into the emotional, like aspects of what you need. Also, we're just kind of forging these two paths concurrently and, you know, talking about other materials, there really isn't that much that can do that across that many boards. Yeah. Try to make a baby monitor out of sheet metal. Go ahead. Try it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a little footnote on the baby monitor. Uh, Ismio Noguchi was Japanese and that was developed in the mid to late thirties uh, after the Lindbergh kid- kidnapping got everybody really mm. about, you know, safety and security after World War II, or no, actually during World War II, uh, right after the attack on Pearl Harbor, a lot of those baby monitors were destroyed, anti-Japanese sentiment. So there's very few of them. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. Wow. I'm like, now I can't really, you know, I, I couldn't imagine that, you know, that t- sort of sentiment, like. Yeah. Yeah, well. Well, and they, you know, it was probably they were thinking, you know, of espionage too. If it's like, you know, well, that's any kind yeah. of, you know, yeah, yeah, wow, wild. That's so... have to pull this up while we were shooting, and it turns out to be it's quite heavy because this is '30s radio technology essentially, and so it had tubes and coils and coils wrapped in bakelite, of course. But uh, yeah, so a lot of a lot of sub stories. Mm-hmm. Do you actually have one, or was that from the Smithsonian? Got one from a collector. One from a collector in New York City. <clears throat> yeah, very few of them around though now. So, so, so speaking of of a lot of lot of sub stories, what is like one of your, or if you maybe if we can have enough time for this, if you guys each have, what's your favorite um, Leo or Bakelite story that? you had to, you couldn't include in the film that just didn't have time or the space. Interesting. I don't know that. I think we got pretty much uh, everything we, everything really we wanted to. I mean, I think some of the things that I dug was, was him walking into his pool fully clothed. Yeah. And, and everybody laughed at him except he got the last laugh because he used evaporation for the whole day to cool. Right. Off, so. The one story I, I remember, John, was when he was working for the Hoover yeah. Company up in Niagara Falls. The people were making uh, caustic soda and um, fluorine, and they were breathing all this fluorine. So Leah went to the top echelon of the company and said it's worth paying a little, spending a little more money on your employees' health. Please help improve the air quality in the plant. So he was very conscious of the workers in his own plant and other plants around the world. I love that. Yeah, Yeah, I'd be very curious to see how he would react to uh, the yin yang of modern plastic, all the wonderful stuff. Look at COVID. Look at this plastic has kept COVID from us. All the plexiglass and the, the face shields, all that stuff is mm-hmm. largely plastic. So that helped us out a lot. But then the other side of it is a, this mountain of crap that we've got 
that we have to deal with. And, right. uh, you know, that's going to be a big challenge. Right. And, and it's, it goes back to that same question. Like, how does the material want to be used? Um, and, and it's, it's the difficulty too, right. Of the, of the, where the, where the product starts with the designer, you know, they might design it for one use. Like the person who, who designed the plastic bag, you know, wanted to, um, um, have it, you know, it was the, the, the key was that it was reusable. You didn't have to, you know, the bag wouldn't break <laughs> right. and, and we, we completely abuse it now. Yeah. Um, the new scientists coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, SPE has this program called Plastivan. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can explain a little bit about that because our film is, we're involved with Plastivan through one of your um, associates at SPE. Yeah, so uh, so with Plastivan, it's um, part of the SPE Foundation with the charitable arm of um, the Society of Plastics Engineers. And um, what I love about Plastivan, so Eve Vitale um, is, you know, responsible for the, you know, curriculum and getting it out there. And, um, and we have, we interviewed her, I think in the second, second or third episode of the podcast actually, but yeah. So if you want, you can go back to the archives if you want to hear about it. And our quality of podcasting has improved since then. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but you know, basically they go out to schools and, you know, educate um, students, you know, for the day or they'll do like special events for like parents um, sometimes afterwards. And they've actually, as of recently, created a new sustainability, um, you know, curriculum uh, that could, you know, either be used with concurrently or totally separate. And they've started rolling that out to some schools. And it's really well received because a lot of these students, you know, Number one, they don't realize how much plastic's in. You know, Eve will say, your shirt right there. That's you know, Eve or the other educators will say, your shirt uh, includes plastic. And the kids will be like, what? <laughs> um, you know, or they'll be like, okay, um, let's, you know, see if nobody bring any plastic in here. And the kids are all like super confident. And it's like everything, you know, your shoes, your shirt, your, you know, mm-hmm your phone, your whatever. And these kids are kind of blown away by it, but then even the sustainability, it's that education on, you know, we don't want to tell you plastics is bad. That's not what plastics is. That's like saying, you know, wood's bad because it gives you splinters or, you know, it's the education on how you use it, what we do with it. Um, you know, making sure you're responsible in your part and, um, and, you know, Plastivan, um, is easily rented for like local schools or, um, and they'll, they'll go out and go to different schools and different events. And, uh, it's just, I, I can't speak enough good things about it. So I'll probably just, yeah, I've, we've brought it and it's, and the way that, 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 I mean, you know, the, the SPE itself, you know, all the different division, technical divisions and, 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 and ge- uh, geographic sections, you know, um, a lot of, a lot of, I know for the color appearance division, you know, we, we donate um, a ton to, to, to bring Plastivan to schools, you know? So, so even though the cost of Plastivan is what, like, uh, is it $1,500 per day? Of, mm-hmm. It's that it's typically all covered by, by, you know, by the, um, the association and also by, you know, sponsors, um, you know, locally and, and globally. Um, it's really, really incredible. Cause yeah, my kids, I mean, learn about plastics just from me talking too much, but, uh, but their classmates never, never would have. And so we, we brought that to, to Chicago public school for three, four years in a row now. Pretty exciting. Great. Great. Yeah. 
So, um, so we're, we're just about out of time. Um, but tell us where can we start streaming the film? Uh, we're going to be up on uh, iTunes, Apple TV Plus, uh, Google Play, YouTube, and Voodoo Domestic uh, starting June 29th. And you can actually pre-order on iTunes now. Um, but we're going to be out in five, language, five languages internationally. And uh, there's also a 21-minute version, educational one. The film is an hour long, but... Um, we also did a 21-minute educational version that still has most of the jokes in it. So uh, <laughs> um, it, it should be entertaining even in a classroom environment. Awesome. Very cool. And, and um, rumor has it there's, a, there's also going to be some kind of event in the future? Yeah. Or can we not talk about that yet? <laughs> yeah, it's in. There, there's a couple things in development. Uh, okay. Maybe we can tell them we, did, we are – just finishing up a little sidecar, a caboose um, movie <laughs> called The Story of Bakelite, which is uh, John K. Mumford's an adaptation of, of a wonderful little book uh, that was written by John K. Mumford in 1925 that extols the, the wonder of, of Bakelite. You know, Bakelite, the, what does he say? Bakelite, the material that makes metal ashamed of itself. <laughs> um, writing is I'm going to use there. that yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, so that, wow. that's that's almost done, and it's going to come out soon. Marty is finishing up the the music on that again, an original score, and we have a one the wonderful voice of John McDonough. Uh, it's almost like an Orson Welles type Ors, Orson Wellian uh, uh, voiceover. So I that's coming. That'll be out and available. It, it, it'll be on our website. Be on the website, yeah. It's yeah. yeah. And, yeah, it's like a little appetizer. And our YouTube channel. Yeah. The, uh, the LH Baseland Project. Okay. Yeah. So awesome. You know, Talking about what would a world without Bakelite look like if if the Bakelite had never existed, you know, I just like Lindsay. So Lindsay, you know, Lindsay and I are are very very good friends. Um, and uh, Lindsay, <laughs> if Bakelite had never existed, we might not ever have met. Rude. <laughs> I asked the uh, the uh, scientist, you know, uh, how could you make a car without plastic? And they were they went back and forth and, and they said, well, I guess you could using these items and wood for this and something else. But it was going to be hard very rubber. tough. What's that? Hard rubber. Yeah. Hard. Yeah. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And certainly today, plastics are make make automotive a lot more fuel efficient, a lot better for the environment. Yeah. And I would be unemployed without plastic. So. <laughs> yeah. Same, well, yeah, I. I yes. I, so so thank you to your your uh, great grandfather for yeah. giving us both careers that we love so much. <laughs> yeah. I hope I hope the whole world sees him, the movie and understands where plastic came from. Well, we will definitely be pushing on our end because we're the best. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, guys. It was an absolute honor to have you both here. Um, and. I'm sure we'll we'll be in touch and um yeah so June 29th yep. all things Bakelite it will be streaming on all the listed platforms so um make sure to check that out and um this episode will actually be released on July 2nd whatever that Friday is 
So yeah, that's the quickest turnaround time for, for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, all right. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Nice to meet you. It was yeah. great to meet you too. In a cyber kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> all right. If you've got a question, the voices of resin are here. Oh, bless chicks. <laughs>